0: The following message is a part of the teaching ministry of Grace Bible Church of Fairburn, Georgia, on the web at gracebible.faith, that's gracebible.faith. So here's our chart again, I hope this is becoming very familiar to you. The first year is down in Judea, the second year is up in Galilee, and that's where Jesus gains the, the height of his popularity. Remember, after that, he starts ministering to the twelve more exclusively. Not completely exclusively because the multitudes won't let him get away, basically. But he's starting to prepare them for his upcoming death. And that takes place around Galilee for about six months. We're in this period now where he's back down in Judea, also going to be ministering in Perea, due east of Judea. And we'll start looking at that probably in two weeks. So we're still finishing up uh, the first three months of this ministry in Judea. <clears throat> here's what it looks like geographically. This is the area of Judea. He's um, both in Jerusalem and some some parts of his ministry, probably staying with Mary and Martha and Lazarus in Bethany uh, when he's you know, spending the night. So here's the four parts of the later Judean ministry. Uh, we, last week got through, uh, well, we we got into the first part of Luke 11, 14 through 36. That's what, well, that's what we finished last week was Luke 12, 13 through 34. And what we're looking at this morning, we see that that section was a warning about greed and trust and wealth. We have a series of warnings in our material this morning, and you'll see that more clearly as we go along. So we want to pick it up. In uh, Luke chapter 12, beginning in verse 35, we're still exclusively in Luke for this section of Jesus' ministry. If you have your harmony with you, you can open up there, or you can just open up your Bibles to Luke chapter 12. And this next warning is a warning against being unprepared for the Son of Man's coming. Now, of course, this is with reference to his second coming. Uh, For a long time, Jesus didn't talk about the second coming at all. And it wasn't clear that there was going to be a second coming. Certainly in, in the Old Testament, it sounds like he comes one time and uh, everything is done at that first coming. Now he's starting to prepare his disciples for a second coming and the multitudes. He's speaking to both in this context. And we're going to really see that in all of the Olivet discourse in a couple of weeks. All right, so let's begin Luke 12, beginning in verse 35. Be dressed in readiness and keep your lamps alight. And be like men who are waiting for their master when he returns from the wedding feast, so that they may immediately open the door to him when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those slaves whom the master shall find on the alert when he comes. Truly I say to you that he will gird himself to serve and have them recline at the table and will come up and wait on them. And again, that's an illustration, but that's what it's going to be like when Christ comes back. He's going to. We're going to enjoy a wedding feast with him. And he's going to reward his servants that have been faithful. We have this kind of infinite emphasis uh, throughout the scripture, and I'm going to read some more passages here in just a bit, on being ready for Christ's return, not being surprised at his coming. That's what he's going to continue to talk about here, and then we'll look at some other scriptures and just reinforce that. Whether he comes in the second watch or even in the third and finds them so, Blessed are those slaves. And be sure of this, that if the head of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have allowed his house to be broken into. You know, their houses back then were made out of dried clay. It was very easy to dig through even a place that wasn't a normal doorway or window and go in and plunder the house. Well, if you if you expect that that's going to happen, then you're on guard. Uh, like David, if he would expected the glass to be breaking on Friday, he would have been out there waiting on it. As it turned out, it wasn't anybody trying to break it anyway. But the idea is is being ready, being expected. You too be ready for the Son of Man's coming in an hour that you do not expect. Now, I think as you read through the book of Acts, you read through Paul's writings, they all expected Christ to come back in their lifetime. And we should too. Now, Yes, it's been two thousand years since Christ ascended back to the Father, and we don't know when he's going to come back. But the whole idea is being ready for him to come back at any time. That's the emphasis here. Peter said, Lord, are you addressing this parable to us or to everyone else as well? So he's making a distinction between the disciples, the twelve, and the multitudes. And I think the Lord's answer is basically then it's to everybody. The Lord said, Who then is the faithful and sensible steward whom his master will put in charge of his servants to give them their rations at the proper time? Blessed is that slave whom his master finds so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you that we will put him in charge of all of his possessions. But if that slave says in his heart, My master will be a long time in coming and begins to beat the slaves, both men and women, and to eat and drink and get drunk, the master of that slave will come on a day when he does not expect him, and in an hour he does not know, and will cut him in pieces and assign him a place with the unbelievers. Now, I don't think you can limit the conduct to what he says here as far as beating people and eating and, and getting drunk. It's basically, though, living in such a way that you expect Christ to come and living, uh, having, having that have an impact on how you live how you make decisions, how you conduct all of your life. That slave who knew his master's will and did not get ready or act in accord with his will shall receive many lashes, but the one who did not know it, committed deeds worthy of a flogging, will receive but few. And he's talking about degrees of punishment there. Now, it's hard for us to imagine, it's really hard for me to imagine, that there is going to be a degree of punishment in an eternal lake of fire. But the Bible teaches this. It teaches... No, to whom much is given, much is required. And that's true for unbelievers as well as believers. That's what it says in verse 4 to 8. From everyone who's been given much, a must be required. And to whom they entrusted much of him, they will ask all the more. You can imagine, for example, the difference between the light that somebody can receive in this country as far as exposure to the gospel and the opportunity to receive the gospel and somebody that's in a country where very little gospel opportunity. They're they're still... Culpable, they're still liable. If they don't receive Christ, they're still going to suffer eternal punishment. But the level of punishment is different depending on the light received. So let me let me just talk about a little bit how the Bible teaches this in other places. We see it very clearly here. We also see it when uh, in Christ's Olivet discourse, and we'll be getting there in a couple of weeks. Well, I say a couple of weeks, probably a month, and we're really going to spend some time. In the Olivet Discourse, there's a lot that goes on during that last week of Christ's life leading up to His crucifixion. You've got the triumphal entry. You've got a very strong confrontation with religious leaders again in Jerusalem. You've got the Olivet Discourse. You've got the Lord's Last Supper uh, with the Twelve. And then you've got the betrayal and arrest. So that's going to take us a while once we get there. But part of that is the Olivet Discourse. And, and Jesus gives several parables in Matthew 24 that illustrate this idea of both faithfulness during the time that we're waiting for Christ to return and watchfulness, being on the alert. We won't go through the parables right now. We'll wait till we get there. He just summarizes all that in Matthew 24:42. says, Therefore, be on the alert, for you do not know which day your Lord is coming. We see it from the Apostle Paul, 1 Thessalonians 5. But you, brethren are not in darkness, that the day should overtake you like a thief. He's talking about the day of the Lord there. For you are all sons of light and sons of day. We are not of night nor of darkness. So then, let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert. And so then This goes to what David was talking about this morning. Those kind of activities happen typically at night. Uh, That means they don't happen at all during the day, but they happen more at night. We don't belong to the same realm as unbelievers. We're not in darkness the same way that they are. So we're not to let those kind of activities, certainly not to let them be part of our lives. Those who sleep, do their sleeping at night. Those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we are the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. So we know that the day of the Lord is coming, right? We know that by divine revelation. We don't know the hour, so we're, we're just to always be ready. Second Peter and, and David will get to this. Well, he already got to this. No, this is in chapter 3. Second Peter 3, verses 11 and 12. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, and the context here is the destruction of the present heavens and earth by fire as opposed to by water in the past, what sort of people ought you to be? in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, on account of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning, the elements will melt with (coughs) intense heat. So that's Christ, that's Paul, that's Peter. How about the Apostle John? 1 John 2.28 And now, little children, abide in him, abide in Christ, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. So it's just a consistent theme throughout the New Testament. <clears throat> Jesus also issues a warning both to the 12 and to his and to the multitudes about the coming division. He says in verse 49, "I have come to cast fire upon the earth, and how I wish it were already kindled." I think the fire there is, is the fire of his judgment. Uh He didn't do that in his first coming. He certainly will at his second. I have a baptism to undergo and how distressed I am until it is accomplished. That is uh, not the baptism that he did at the hands of John the Baptist, but his own death and resurrection. That's really going to precede and make possible his being a righteous judge and separating the righteous from the wicked. Then he says, Do you suppose that I came to grant peace on earth? Well, you would think that question is yes. I mean, Christ did come first to grant and enable peace between us and God, right? He comes to pay the sacrifice of our sins so that we can have peace with God, we can be reconciled to God. He also enables peace between believers. So there's a sense in which definitely the answer is yes, but there's also a sense in which the answer is no. And in this context, it is no. And think about the context in which they're in. Already we're seeing a lot of the religious leaders and their influence on people to turn them away from Jesus of Nazareth as the Messiah. And so from this point forward, as some people receive him and believe in him, particularly we see this in the book of Acts, many of the Jews don't believe in him. And they pursue Paul now instead of pursuing Christ and persecute him and persecute anybody. of of the Jewish people that accept Christ as Messiah. And Jesus is just preparing them for that. He says, I tell you no, but rather division. For from now on, five members in one household will be divided, three against two and two against three. They will be divided father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, Mother mother-in-law against daughter-in-law and (laughs) daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. I think he's speaking in that context, particularly within the Jewish nation. But the principle is the same, right? You have people today, even in our country, where part of the family receives Christ and and trusts in him as their Lord, and another doesn't. And they don't have the same kind of relationship as a family where everybody does. Certainly in other countries, uh, particularly countries that are dominated by Islam, if somebody accepts Christ there, they're cut off. Uh, And they continue to be cut off that way among uh, Orthodox Jews as well. Okay? We have another warning now against failing to discern the present time. And this present time, again, in the context, is the kingdom is here. It's among you. The Messiah is here. He's done all these miracles, and he's taught with such authority that it should have been obvious to this generation that this was their Messiah and yet it wasn't. And he really rebukes them for that. He uses an illustration to say, look, you can tell by what you see, what kind of weather is coming and you can't even tell now that the kingdom of God is among you with all these signs. Verse 54, he was also saying to the multitudes, when you see a cloud rising in the west, immediately you say a shower is coming. And so it turns out. And when you see a south wind blowing, you say, it'll be a hot day and it turns out that way. You hypocrites. You know how to analyze the appearance of the earth in the sky, but why do you not analyze this present time? Why do you not even on your own initiative judge what is right? For while you're going with your opponent to appear before the magistrate, on your way there, make an effort to settle with him in order that he may not drag you before the judge, and the judge turn you over to the constable, and the constable will throw you into prison. Now, he's not just talking there about uh, lawsuits on the earth, even though that's good advice for somebody that's involved in a dispute. It's always better to try to work something out between the two parties rather than take it to court. You don't know what a court's going to do. You don't know what a jury's going to do. If you can work it out between you and the offended party, or if you're the offended party and the person who did the offending, that's always better. But he's talking about something larger here. He's talking about what you have to work out with God. It's better to do it now while you have that opportunity than wait till judgment. And that becomes clear when you read verse 49. I say to you, verse 59, I'm sorry. I say to you, you should not get out of there until you've paid the very last cent. He's talking about eternal punishment there. and The need to take advantage of the opportunity now to be reconciled to God. He's just using a Something that they were very familiar with, and something that they did uh, to illustrate what they needed to do as far as recognizing what was going on in their day. Okay, Luke 13, two alternatives repent or perish. Um, This is an interesting section because there's two ways you can interpret this, and I think you make a strong case for both ways. Uh, I'm going to tell you which one I think is stronger. 13 verse 1 Now on the same occasion there were some present who reported to Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices Now what he's talking about there is that evidently there had been some Galileans that came down to offer sacrifice probably at a Passover You can imagine how many sacrifices because people were coming from all over the country were being offered at the Passover and I think there were times where There just weren't enough priests to do all that. So in this case, the the worshipers themselves were offering sacrifices, animal sacrifices. And Pilate chose the occasion to kill those worshipers. That's what he's talking about. He talks about their blood being mingled with the sacrifices that they were offering. They were murdered by Pilate. And these people were telling Jesus about this incident. So Jesus is going to take, take advantage of the opportunity really to kind of dispel a commonly held myth that when something like that really bad happened to somebody, and especially a very difficult way to die, it was a result of their sin. Remember the same thing happened with the blind men that Jesus healed, and the religious leaders asked, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? So that was the common way of thinking. A commonly held notion that a person's extreme sinfulness was always to blame for a great calamity it's rejected by Jesus here he, said, he answered and said to them do you suppose that these Galileans were greater sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered this fate I tell you no but unless you repent you will all likewise perish he brings up another illustration they had told him about one and now he has one of his own Or do you suppose that those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them were worse culprits than all the men who live in Jerusalem? I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Now, there's a couple of ways of understanding what Jesus is talking about here, particularly on the, well, key way of is the word likewise. Is he talking about a similar physical death as to what happened here? Or is he talking about a very unexpected kind of thing, particularly after death and beyond the grave? Is the repentance a personal, individual repentance, which goes with the view of you'll perish in the sense of eternally perishing unless you repent? Or is it a corporate repentance? Repentance. That is, is he calling on the nation to repent, or they will perish very unexpectedly and very tragically, drastically? Again, I think you can make a case for either one, and I think uh, I know both are true. If you don't repent individually, you're going to face very, you're going to face eternal punishment after physical death. I think here he's calling on the nation repent. And he's looking forward to their judgment, particularly what comes to pass in 70 A.D. And he's saying, look, if you don't repent, you're going to die like those people that died at Siloam and like the Galileans who had their blood mixed with their own sacrifices. The clincher, I think, is, well, let me go back. When he says likewise, uh, you've got to deal with that. Did the, did the people, the Galileans who had their blood mixed with their own sacrifices, were they unsaved, had they not repented in the spiritual sense? We don't know, can't say for sure what their spiritual condition was. So the likewise there wouldn't apply necessarily if, if they were saved, if they had repented. They wouldn't perish after death in the way that uh, that review requires. Let me read you uh, a supporter of that view, and it is a more commonly held view that he's talking about individual repentance here. Uh, John Piper says it this way, and I'm, I'm quoting him because I think he sums up the argument very well. Those Galileans were taken unawares and experienced a horrible end. Unless you repent, you too will be taken unawares and experience a horrible end, the judgment of God beyond the grave. So he's moving from a very difficult physical death that the two examples provided, to a spiritual death, but unexpected. And so, again, I think that's a strong argument. The thing that clinches it for me to be Israel is, one, the physical death that they would experience at 70 AD corresponds, I think, very well with the two incidents that are cited. But even more than that is the parable that follows in verses 7 through 9. I'm sorry beginning verse 6. He began telling this parable. A certain man had a fig tree which had been planted in his vineyard, and he came looking for fruit on it and did not find any. And he said to the vineyard keeper, Behold, for three years I've come looking for fruit on this fig tree without finding any. Cut it down. Why does it even use up the ground? And he answered and said to him, Let it alone, sir, for this year too, until I dig around it and put in fertilizer. And if it bears fruit next year, fine. But if not, cut it down. So that's a parable. What are the individual elements of that parable? For example, who is the vineyard keeper? Jesus. Is it? Could be. Any other possibilities? The Father. Okay. The Father, at least I would say, is the owner of the vineyard. And maybe I'm not making a clear enough distinction there. Christ is definitely the one that's asking for an additional year. I think the, the three years are the three years of Christ's ministry, right? So far, he's not really seeing fruit among the nation, and he's used this kind of fig tree parable before. Um, the additional year that he's asking for is the remaining time of his ministry and even into the book of Acts. You know, even in the early chapters of Acts, God is using uh, Peter, particularly, to call a nation to repentance, and they're they're not doing it. So I believe this parable uh, makes the case stronger that what Jesus is looking at here is the future judgment of Israel in 70 AD. It's not to say that unless you repent individually, uh, you're going to die eternally. That's true. There's no question about it. But the question is, what is he teaching in this context? I think the case is stronger for that. We have opposition from a synagogue official for healing a woman on the Sabbath. Now, we've seen that kind of opposition before, uh, particularly from the religious leaders, and particularly when Jesus was back down in Judea earlier, although it happened up in Galilee as well. Here it's going to happen again. Chapter 13, beginning in verse 10. He was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath, and behold, there was a woman who for 18 years had had a sickness caused by a spirit. And she was bent double and could not straighten up at all. And when Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, Woman, you are free from your sickness. That's a little bit different from some of the other ways that Jesus has healed. Oftentimes, people approached him. Uh, here, he's just taking the initiative to heal this woman. It may well be that he's doing it on the Sabbath on purpose uh, to again highlight the fact that he's Lord of the Sabbath. He laid his hands upon her, and immediately she was made erect again, And began glorifying God. And the synagogue official, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, began saying to the multitude in response, There are six days in which work should be done, and they considered healing work. That's why they didn't want it to be done on the Sabbath. Therefore come during them and get healed, and not on the Sabbath day. But the Lord answered him and said, You hypocrites! Does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the stall and lead him away to water him? Of course, that was true, and that was something that was very uh, important to the Jewish people, is to care for their own animals. And that's what Jesus is going to use for why he did what he did. You do that on the one hand, and this woman, a daughter of Abraham, she is a member of the nation of Israel, whom Satan has bound for 18 years, 18 long years, should, should she not have been released from this bond on the Sabbath day? Nothing wrong with healing her on the Sabbath day. It wasn't a violation of the law. And he's just making the point that there is religious leaders. And again, we talked about how they laid over the true law with all these man made regulations. And they use that as a means of judging others, of kind of elevating themselves, even though they didn't keep all that they proposed, but they were teaching as man, teaching or substituting the Word of God and the doctrines of men. And in this case, Jesus goes after them for that reason. Now, there's an interesting response at this point, verse 17, as he said this, all his opponents were being humiliated, and the entire multitude was rejoicing over all the glorious things being done by him. we're already at a point now where Jesus' enemies are really out to get him. The opposition is hardened to the point where they're starting to plot. Uh, That's only going to get stronger as we continue. They're really trying to find things that they can bring against him as charges. And so at this point, he's humiliated his opponents, while at the same time the people are rejoicing. They've seen another miracle, and they're rejoicing in the power of God and glorifying God. Verse 18 connects that response to two parables that follow. And the two parables are ones that we looked at because they appear in Matthew's gospel in Matthew chapter 13. Therefore, he was saying, what is the kingdom of God like and to what shall I compare it? It is like a mustard seed, which a man took and threw into his own garden, and it grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air nested in its branches." That's one of the parables, the parable of the mustard seed. And again he said, to what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three pecks of meal until it was all leavened. Now, most commentators are going to say that these two parables teach the same thing in the sense of they either both teach a good thing, they both teach the presence of evil within the kingdom. Remember, we talked about this when we looked at these parables. The first one has to do with the birds nesting in the branches of the mustard seed and the the tree that grows from it. They say that the birds represent evil. They were unclean. Certain birds were in the Old Testament. Birds are the ones that snatch away the seed as Satan's agent in the first soil. So they would say that this is the presence of evil in the kingdom. The case for leaven being evil is even stronger. I agree with that. I think it is the presence of evil in the kingdom. I don't agree with the mustard seed being evil. I think it's just from a very small beginning, this kingdom is going to flourish. Even though you've got multitudes following Jesus at different points in his ministry while he's in Israel, I mean, this is still, after his death, a very small group that's gathered together, uh, 120 people, But from that small start, there's going to be this worldwide enterprise of the church at that point. Um, So I would take the mustard seed being related back to the people that are rejoicing in the earlier context, and the leaven being the the fact that these Pharisees uh, are going to continue to oppose Jesus or these religious leaders, and that there is going to be an evil within the kingdom that flourishes over time as well. Uh, the false teachers are a good example of that. You've got, and you have had since the beginning in the New Testament period, false teachers that infiltrate the church and they're from Satan and they des- their desires to corrupt uh, sound doctrine and to lead people astray. And that's part of God's plan. I mean, He's the one that allows that. And think about what the kingdom is like as it continues in the present day until Christ returns. The seven years, right before Christ comes back, you've got a false Christ claiming to be the true Messiah, and you've got a worldwide following of that false Christ. So the leaven completely permeates what I would argue is still part of the kingdom at that point. Now Christ comes back and separates that and takes care of all that. He he kills all those who oppose him at that point. But You've got both things happening at the same time. We've got the growth of the church and the spread of the gospel around the world, even though I would argue it's never been in the majority, but it is continually growing. And We have the promise of Christ that the kingdom is going to continue to grow until he comes. At the same time, you've got evil within that, and that you've got things like the Roman Catholic Church and cults and false teachers that are seeking to corrupt the true gospel, and all that will only get s- sorted out in. We saw the same kind of thing with the parable of the dragnet, the parable of the uh, tares among the wheat. Okay, that's where we're going to stop today. Next time we'll look at uh, part five of the later Judea ministry of Christ. Uh, we're going to be back in John's gospel at this point, And this is another section that looks like that only he records for us in chapters 9 and 10. So if you want to read those for next week. All right. Do you have questions about anything that we covered this morning? We may talk about healing. Obviously, they were not healing the same way that Jesus was. They were just talking about like seeing a doctor that day, or what what was the I didn't understand the so yeah. six days in which work should be done. So, so come during then and get healed. Which so, he was addressing that. So he's really and you notice. He doesn't seem to be directing his comments toward Jesus so much as the healer, but towards the people. If they don't come to Jesus on the Sabbath, they can't get healed on the oh, Sabbath. I see. So that was the point: is you know, they weren't. He wasn't necessarily opposed to them being healed, but not on the Sabbath, because for him that was a violation of the Sabbath. Okay, thank you. Was that their way of trying to cut down his popularity, his opportunities to do his miracles, to keep the people from coming to him? Yeah, I don't know that. Uh, I don't know that they were necessarily doing that you know, by not having him come on the side, but they just didn't want that kind of thing to be done on the Sabbath. To them, that was against their rules and regulations. I don't know that he was... uh, They were trying to prevent people from being healed, necessarily. What they would often do, though, is if they, for example, we've seen already, if he healed somebody by casting a spirit out like he did with this woman, they attributed it to Belzebul. I can't think of a place where they were actually trying to to prevent somebody from coming to Jesus, they were very much opposed to him, no question. But I don't, I can't think of a place where they were trying to keep him. I think that because they worked hard, from Sunday through Friday, um, there it was hard. Yes. And their only day off was Saturday. Right. And so they would do stuff like that on Saturday. Yeah, it was a day of rest for the enemy, and it was intended to be a gift to them from that hard work. Uh, but, you know, the main thing that Jesus is going after is the way that they had made it, they had turned what was supposed to be a gift of rest into a burden. And they had made all these rules that they couldn't do certain things. And he says, look, you treat your animals better on Saturday than you do uh, another human being, especially another fellow Jew. Yes. I was just thinking to David, like, it it's more than just like a squabble over the letter of the law. Like I think of drew who was visiting us the last two weeks and all of his physical infirmities. And if someone walked up to him and healed him and he stood up and he was whole and to look at that person and say, why are you doing that today? Like the pure wickedness of yes. that is absolutely overwhelming. It is. And so the fact that like, they couldn't even recognize that. It was shocking. I don't know. It is shocking, and it's very telling what their attitude toward, not only toward Jesus was, but I think they had just completely lost sight of things like compassion. Jesus said that as well, and mercy. They're very particular about externals and tithing, and even to the smallest seeds. But they would have something like this right in front of them, and they, like you're saying, they, they don't rejoice in it. That's just so wicked. Yeah, it really is. That's like. Sorry, go ahead. Uh, What would a typical Sabbath look like? Did they do rituals and that kind of thing, or did they just the Levites just rest as well? I think uh, it's largely a day of rest for everybody. I mean, if you look back at what the Old Testament describes it as, you are to work hard for those six days. Seventh, Seventh day is a day of rest. I think it was a physical. Reju- rejuvenation and uh, just a recognition too of what God had done for them and providing for them those six days, even giving them the ability and power to work and they just, they were to rest, largely. It started basically, you know, their day starts in the evening. We think of our day starting in the morning. So it would start sundown on Friday and end sundown Saturday, What would we would go, Saturday night. But the Levites worked like crazy outside. Well, they, they worked any time there were sacrifices in the temple, yes. <coughs> and I think Jesus even uses that as an illustration. Is this an example of what David was saying earlier about how you can get so <coughs> evil you deceive yourself well, by your own sin? They were definitely self-deceived because they saw themselves as very righteous, and the people saw them that way as well. So I I would argue that they were the false teachers of their day. They they developed over the intertestamental period. I think they had good intentions starting out. They were trying to set a fence around the law of God and and make sure people obeyed. But it became uh, an issue of their own teachings supplanting what the Scripture taught. And so much of what Jesus does during his earthly ministry is to refute what the scribes and Pharisees taught. You know, he said in the Sermon on the Mount, lest your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. And he starts to contrast the things that they taught with the things for what he taught and what was really true. So they were early opponents of Jesus and he was early opponent with them. And he's... We talked about this a lot, but the you can tell, you can see how that would be confusing for them. They were so, these folks were, for them, uh, even by the scribes and Pharisees, they were taught. They taught the people that they were to be regarded highly, and that they were the godly examples. And now they've got a Messiah that's coming and and directly contradicting them. Okay, thank you for your attention, and be sure if you if you want to do some prep for next week. Uh, You can read John chapters 9 and 10. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the record that we have in the Gospels. Uh, We thank you for Christ and the purity of his teaching. We thank you that there is coming a day where everything will be judged. and will be judged righteously, even in our own lives. And that can be a scary thought for us on the one hand, but we recognize also that it's something that causes us to both rejoice in our salvation and what Christ has done to take away our sins and also to motivate us, to motivate us to live godly lives, to recognize that you will judge in the end. It also keeps us from being vengeful towards others ourselves because we can leave room for your wrath and your judgment. We thank you for just the time we've had together this morning and the things that we've been taught from your Word. Help us to be vigilant, to know what the Scripture teaches ourselves, to be good Bereans, to measure what we hear taught by what your Word plainly says, and help us to live in expectation of Christ's coming. Uh, just to knowing that that thought will help us endure in the difficult circumstances that we face, and knowing it also will serve as, as a purifying influence on our own lives. We thank you for our time this morning, Father. We pray that you go with us through this week and help us to, to live faithfully and to be a witness, a faithful witness for Christ. We pray in his name. Amen.